So with that, I'd have you turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. What a great way to start a new year. Gathered with the saints of God to worship. To worship through prayer, singing, reading, preaching. We'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Later we'll have a time of fellowship over a meal. I can say this to you in all honesty, sincerity, truth, however else you want me to qualify it. There is no place I'd rather be at this moment than right here. One of the hopes I have for myself and for all of us in the coming year is that we would more highly prize this day, the Lord's Day. It is a day unlike any other. It's the best day of the week. So if you're in Psalm 1, I read this just in my own reading several weeks ago. And like you, I have read this psalm countless times, committed it to memory years ago. But you know that the word of God is living and active. And those things that we think we know best in the scriptures, very often it pleases the Lord to turn the light up a bit. And so I want to go back and look at this psalm with you. And I pray that the Lord would help me relay the truth of it to you. This psalm juxtaposes the way of the godly and ungodly. It sets them side by side. We're reminded in this psalm that there are really only two types of people. There are only two categories of people. Those who have been made godly by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And those who are lost and dead in sin. The godly and the ungodly. Their description, the description of both is given here. The desire of both is given here. One is explicitly said, the other is implied. And then also the end of both is given here in this psalm. So if you'd follow along as I read it. Psalm 1 begins by saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Pray with me. Our Father, we come to your word this morning, Lord, and we place ourselves humbly before it. We come asking you, Lord, to give us more understanding, that you would illumine our minds by your spirit, that you would come alongside of us and teach us, Lord, that you would renew a zeal in us to live unto your glory, that you would renew a zeal in us to guard ourselves from the influence of the world around us. 
Lord, I pray that as we study this psalm together this morning, you would edify the saints, you would build us up, encourage us, convict us where we need it. Lord, I pray the truth of the living God would shine forth and that we could all leave here in one accord, having been made right in your sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, let's begin just with the first word. You've heard sermons, probably multiple sermons on Psalm 1. You've heard multiple word studies on this word, and I don't seek to add anything new to what you already know. Just remind you of a few things. The word blessed, we read that King James English, blessed, right? The word blessed, some of your translations may have a note. Some of the newer English translations possibly even use the word happy here. And so this word speaks to the desire of all men. I realize it's in a context. We're going to deal with that context. But first, let's just see what this word represents and what it stands for. This is the desire of every person you will ever meet. Everyone desires to be happy. Everyone pursues that course in life which they think will make them happy. The word in the original language of the Hebrew, John Trapp tells us, the root form of this word means to go straight away, to go straight ahead, not veering to the left or to the right. And then it details for us what that way is. He says this work this word speaks to the true and real happiness such as all men pretend to but few find. The universal quest for happiness. Years ago in the margin of my Bible, I don't know where I've gotten this. I'm not meaning to not give credit for the statement. I just don't know who it belongs to. Man's greatest desire is to be happy. True enough. Man's greatest folly is to think that happiness can be obtained through the enjoyments of the world. Our greatest desire is to be happy. Our greatest ignorance is to think that we can be happy through worldly means. That is the deceitfulness and the tragedy of sin. It takes this quest that all of mankind is on to be the happy and blessed man and offers countless counterfeits in place of the one true thing that makes a man happy, which this psalm details for us. But I want you to think with me for a moment. You often hear the phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. It's a biblical term, biblical phrase. Sin makes great promises, but it does not fulfill a single one of them. Sin brings immediate gratification. That's the deceitfulness of it. We don't see and taste very often in the beginning the long-term destruction that it brings. The relationships that it will destroy. 
And even more important, the soul that it will damn. The masses around us that are living in open rebellion, many of them in obliviousness toward God, note that they are seeking to be happy. We have in our day this phenomenon of the LGBTQ and whatever other initial they place at the end of that phenomenon. Or what are called nowadays the gender confused. You realize that those who should be subjects and objects of our great mercy and evangelism. They are seeking to be happy. And they think that that lifestyle is going to produce in them happiness. The same goes for any type of sin lived out that you can think of. Those who are addicted to drugs, those who are addicted to the pursuit of wealth or money, those who are addicted to anything, none start with the desire to end up where sin eventually takes them. All of this starts with a quest to be happy. But it does not end there. It does not end up in Psalm 1. It ends up in Romans 1. And if you have not read Romans chapter 1 in a while, go back and read it. So I want to speak a word just briefly to young people. You are in a particularly tender season of life, whether you realize it or not. It is very rare that an older person comes to faith in Christ. It is not an impossibility. The Lord has mercifully shown us that. But it is increasingly and indeed rare. So please listen while you are young. By the help and grace of God, whatever you are seeking to be happy that is not in accordance with the word of God, that is not in accordance to Christ and his word, his church, whatever you are seeking To make you happy that is not lined up with this. Run from it. It will not take you where you want to go. In the end it will destroy you. In the end you will find yourself in the second part of verse 6 of this psalm. The way of the ungodly shall perish. And I would call to your mind the. The parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Their lives could not have been more opposite on earth. Nor could they have been more opposite in glory. The rich man were told he fared sumptuously every day. Every day he had the best of things. The best of the food. The best of the drink. The best of the clothes. The best servants. He did not withhold anything from himself, but yet when he died, he went straight away into a real, actual, and living hell. The poor man, who knew nothing of the sumptuous life, but obviously the implication is there that he knew Christ. When he died, he went immediately into the glories of heaven. Let me try to say it as plainly as I can. There is nothing in this world that will make you happy. I didn't say that there were things in this world that wouldn't make you temporarily happy. 
I'm speaking to something far greater than that. I'm speaking to that which will make you eternally blessed. But it's not just children and young people who need to be told this. We as adults need to hear it as well. If there are things in your life that you are giving yourself to in hopes that it will make you happy, that are not in accordance with the scriptures, the word of God, the way of God in Psalm 1, abandon it. Do that, do that immediately. Pray for mercy and break out of the clutches of sin. It is superficial. It will not sustain itself. Happiness in this life is only to be found in Jesus Christ. So be saved from the heartache and the misery of pursuing it anywhere else or in anyone else. The desire to be happy if it is not bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ is of the devil. It's deceitful. It's all a lie. It will not take you where you want to go. So with that, I want you to return to Psalm 1 and look with me at the description and the delight of the godly. Notice how, notice how particular the psalm is. In considering what is blessed, there is a, a straight way to find it. There is a straight avenue in which we must walk. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Have you ever wondered why in this psalm that the description of the blessed man begins in the negative by what he or she does not do rather than in what they do pursue? My attempt at answering that would be this. The scriptures begin here because of sin in our lives and the deceitfulness of sin. And this is the default of sorts where all men begin in trying to be happy. So immediately, straightway, we are warned against it. We are told that this is not where it is to be found. But as you read that first verse, note the progression, both of what I'm going to call interaction and influence. There are three things that are said here. First, the blessed man is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So there, is, there are degrees of interaction here. The degrees are to be found in this. The walking or intermingling. Next, the standing. And then finally, the sitting in the seat of the scornful. But it's not just in the interaction. It's the degree of influence as well that is to be seen here. First, it is the influence of the ungodly. Second, the influence of what the scripture calls sinners. And then third, the scornful. Some would see here that the ungodly are those that just have no fear of God. They're not overtly trying to shake their fist in the face of God. They are just living oblivious to the goodness of God, the particular grace of God. They are just ungodly in the sense that they are not fearing him. But that progresses into what the scripture calls the path of sinners. 
This seems to take it a step further, not just no, not having a fear of God, but now living in willing sin against God. Spurning conviction. And that leads to a third, the scornful, who are not just not God-fearing and willingly sinning against the Lord, but now they are in high-handed rebellion and outright scoffing in the face of the Lord. But I want to go back to this interaction, first of all. When you read standing, sitting, and the first one, walking, I want you to think of it in in this way. The blessed man is one who is not walking, but that doesn't obviously have to do with a physical action. It has to do with one who is not listening to the counsel of the ungodly. What do you listen to? Who do you listen to? As you are on this quest to be happy, whose counsel are you seeking? Counsel of the scriptures or counsel of the quote ungodly? But that goes a step further. The standing, no longer are you just listening to what is being said. You are being drawn in. You are moving closer. Perhaps you like what you hear and you are taking steps to be drawn in. And that leads to the sitting. Now you're all in. You're not just listening. You're not being drawn in. But you are all in, seated seated in the seat of the scornful. And so we might summarize it this way. There is no part of this world system, small, medium, or large, ungodly, sinners, or scornful. No part of this world system will make us more godly or benefit us spiritually at all. That's why the small things are so dangerous. That's why you do see this progression in verse 3. Not everyone moves straight into the seat of the scornful. It all begins with the counsel of the ungodly. And isn't that even when we go back and rewind all the way to the book of Genesis, wasn't that what instigated the fall of man? Did not Adam and Eve listen to the counsel of the most ungodly? Wasn't it the words of Satan more so than his actions here that drew them in? Do you not see the progression? They walked in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, they entertained what they heard. They gave some thought to what they heard. Rather than immediately turning from it in obedience to God, there was an entertainment of it, and then they were drawn in, and by the end of it, they were all in. But all in what? All in high-handed rebellion against God. All in sin sin against the Lord, having sat in the seat of the scornful. And isn't that what Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians? What does he say? Children, bad company corrupts what? Good morals? It matters. It absolutely matters who you surround yourself with. And that goes true for children 
teenagers, young adults, adults. It absolutely matters who you are influenced by. And I think this psalm goes to great length to prove it. But there is also a positive description of the blessedness of this man, the happiness of this man. Verse 2 tells us in what he finds his greatest pleasure. That's what the word delight here really means or another way of understanding it. His pleasure is found. His delight is in the law of the Lord. A couple of ways we can understand this. Is the scripture speaking about the specific law of God as contained in summary form in the Ten Commandments, the greater part of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament? doesn't matter. His delight is in the law of the Lord because there the Lord is revealed to him. He doesn't delight in the law of the Lord for the law's sake. But for what he learns as he looks there. We're told in other places that the law is holy and just and good. We're told by Paul that the law is used as a tutor to bring us to Christ. So how can it be anything but the pleasure or the delight of the godly or the blessed, the happy man? But notice what it says about this law. He is delighting in it and then it works its way out. There is evidence that this is his delight. There is more than just credence given through words. Yes, I'm delighting in the law of the Lord. There is activity that is attached to it as well. And that is in his law, he meditates Day and night. You realize as I do. Something is filling our minds. Right? Our minds do not live in a vacuum. We are affected. By whatever outward stimulus. We make ourselves. To be influenced by. Something is filling our minds. Is it the counsel of the ungodly? Or is it the law of the Lord? The struggle of continued obedience and walking with the Lord begins in your mind and in mine. That's why the psalm brings out the importance, the important place of meditation. Meditation in this day and time is a word that most Christians Attach a negative connotation to, right? Eastern mysticism, all of those types of things, all of those images that come to your mind when you think of meditation. What is meditation? What does the scripture have in mind when it says the delight of the blessed man is the law of the Lord and in this law he meditates? Well, let's let me appeal to John Owen. John Owen defines meditation in very simple words. He said it is the art of thinking Of some chosen spiritual subject in an orderly, disciplined way. The art of thinking of some chosen spiritual subject in an orderly, disciplined way. Some of you know the name and have read A.W. Pink. Listen to what he says about meditation. He says, meditation upon the word of God is one of the most important of all the means of grace And growth in spirituality. There can be no true progress in vital and practical godliness without it. 
Meditation on divine things is not optional, but obligatory, for it is something that God has commanded us to do. Is that the way you think of meditation? That this is a command of God? You might read this by saying this this isn't a command here in the second verse. It's just telling us what the blessed man does. And you're right. But what about these verses? Beginning back in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says through his servant, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today. Which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. To set your heart on it means to meditate upon it. We can go further. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 26. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. The minor prophet Haggai. The seventh verse of the first chapter. The Lord says to this people. As he is about to sternly rebuke them. He says consider your ways. In other words meditate upon the true spiritual condition or lack of it that you find yourselves in or perhaps even the words of Jesus in Luke 9:44 he says let these words sink down into your ears isn't that a graphic and helpful <coughs> illustration to let the word of god sink down into your ears and probably the best Place or one of the greatest places we could appeal to this is Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul says there, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The best things. One of the marks of spiritual growth in a Christian, I think, is to be able to give up good things for the best things. To be able to give up those things that are not necessarily or inherently bad to pursue the better, even the best things. There is little in this world, even even those things which are not overtly or inherently sinful on the surface. There is little in this world that is worthy of our meditation to the degree that Paul is talking of. And that is a description or characteristic of the happy and blessed man. But can I ask you a question? And please be honest with yourself. It does no good to not be honest. What do you meditate upon? Is it the word of God? What do you spend your most time thinking, contemplating, mulling over? Thomas Manton, another old author, says this. And he's he's responding to the question of sorts of, If we were to put a question to him, why am I not growing in in grace? Why am I not growing in understanding? Why am I not growing 
in knowledge. He says this, your faith is lean and starving unless it be fed with continual meditation on the promises of God. We can physically observe the effects on the physical body of someone who is not getting the nourishment that they need, right? It's obvious. It's not so easy to see. And here, make, make the application to yourself. It's not so easy to see. It's impossible to see with physical eye the leanness of your soul. The leanness of your spirit. The, the immaturity of your own faith. The starving nature of your own faith. If the Lord would for a moment give most of us, not all, I'm not throwing everyone under the bus, but I'm under the bus. If the Lord would give us the ability to see, as we do physically, what our soul, our spirits look like, how many of us are malnourished, how many of us are are standing in great need, and yet we have readily available That which through meditation, study, prayerful study at that, that would greatly feed us, but for whatever reason, for a multitude of reasons, the passing, fleeting things of the world that are reserved for fire is what gets the lion's share of our time, our energy, our efforts, our minds. God help us. Meditation, according to Thomas Watson, is one of the greatest aids in the mortification of sin. Mortification of sin, the old phrase, the newer translations translated, put to death sin in you. One of the greatest ways we can mortify sin is to meditate upon the truth of the scripture. I love his definition for mortification. He says to mortify sin is to shed the blood of the sin that shed the blood of Christ. If you are to mortify sin through meditation upon the truth, you will put to death the sin in your life that put the son of God to death. Again, God help us to do that. There is an illustration of the godly man or the blessed man in the third verse. And the thing that strikes me here in the third verse is the certainty of this illustration. It says he shall be. Not that he has placed himself in great hope or It could possibly in the end be like this, but the scripture speaks plainly. He shall be like a tree. So this is the beginning of the illustration, but it goes deeper. Notice that this tree has been planted. When something is planted, what what does that imply? That it's being rooted. It's being stabilized. Planted by the rivers of water. Again, I I present a question to you. Is this a good and faithful definition of our spiritual lives that we are firmly and well established, rooted in the faith, 
as Paul would write to the Colossians? Or is it far more fitting and descriptive of us to be like you wrote to the Ephesians, being those people who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, tossed about by every care and concern of life, planted by the rivers of water? Another thing that, that struck me here that I've never really paid any attention to, the obvious, isn't it? Most of the time, or a lot of the times, isn't, the, isn't it the obvious things that we tend to skip over? Notice that the word here is plural. Rivers. God is no stingy giver. It would have been enough for the psalm to say that you are planted by the river of water. But yet the psalm says that we are planted by the rivers of water. And I think we could make this application. If your desire, if my desire is to be happy and blessed in the things of God, then God would amply supply. He would in great abundance supply and answer that request and that desire, not just by planting you beside the river of water, which would be enough, but beside rivers of water. Where God gives the desire, he provides for the desire. If your desire be to be happy and godly in the things of Christ and in the things of the word of God, then you are amply supplied. You will never run out of things to meditate upon, to study, to pray over because you're planted by the rivers of water. And then this next part, so helpful, that brings forth its fruit in its season. There are seasons of your life as a Christian, where you will bear tremendous fruit. But the next part is the part I want to show you even more so. In those seasons when you are not producing fruit, in those seasons of difficulty, trouble, heartache, whatever it may be, Whatever may be represented by being not the season for fruit, notice that your leaf is not going to wither. You're not going to dry up and cease to be. The Lord will sustain you even then. So is it any wonder that this man is blessed? Is it any wonder that he's happy in the fruit-bearing seasons of life? He is producing fruit to the glory of God, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But reality tells us, experience living and walking with Christ tells us every day, every month, nor every year is a season of fruit-bearing. A lot of life is lived not on the mountain of fruit bearing, but in the valley. But we can take heart. Even there, you're not going to wither and dry up and die. If you're in Christ, your leaf is not going to wither and whatever you do will prosper. In the sense of true prosperity. Not in the sense of a worldly, selfish, 
get all I can type of prosperity. But true soul prosperity, what you do will prosper. That gets us down, and we're going to draw this to a close here with the destruction of the ungodly. We've seen the desire of all men to be happy. The description and the delight of the truly godly. Part of the greatness of this psalm is the vast distinction that it makes between the two. The destruction of the ungodly. Notice verse 4. How simply it reads. The ungodly are not so. Nothing that is true of the blessed, happy, godly man is true of the ungodly. It isn't so. But are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You know what chaff is. And you can picture this image in your mind. I've never threshed wheat like biblical times, nor probably have you. But we can understand it. You put the full stalk in. You hit it with something. You break the kernel loose. And you sift it. And as you sift it, you're throwing it up. The wind is carrying off the chaff or the unnecessary part, the unbeneficial part. That's the image that is given here. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Here's a question for you to think on. How close was the chaff to the kernel? How close? As close as it could get, right? It was encapsulating it. It was holding it. But when the day of judgment, so to speak, came, when the threshing day came, It was separated and removed. So let me just, if I I may, give you this warning. Your closeness to the things of God and to the things of Christ, to the scriptures, to his church, your closeness doesn't matter in the end. You can be as close as the chaff is to the kernel of wheat and it not benefit you a single thing in the day of judgment or threshing. You must be the kernel itself. And if your question is, how does that come to be? How does that come to pass? You must be in Christ. You must be the wheat and not the tear. You must be the sheep and not the goat. The ungodly are like chaff which the wind drives away. And then second part of their description. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In the day of judgment when when men are called to account before God. When Christ is seated as judge, only those who have learned of him in the law and through the gospel and have cast themselves upon him by faith will stand in that day. Everyone else will be cast like chaff into everlasting darkness. So many of the worldly wise, like the rich man who fared sumptuously every day, will in the end be reduced to nothing more than chaff blown away by the wrath of a holy God but not blown away into oblivion 
but into an endless judgment. You realize that God sustains even the ungodly, but he sustains them to be endlessly and eternally judged. Many ways you could define hell. The absence of mercy is one of those. But notice as we get to the end, there is a separation. Verse 6 speaks to this separation. The, way, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And that's more than just the Lord looking down at you and seeing which way you're on and knowing you're going the right way. The word know here is, is to be contrasted with the second part of the verse. The way of the ungodly shall perish. So the word know there means more than just knowledge. Certainly it means a full knowledge. But if the Lord is knowing it, if he is countenancing it, if he is giving his favor and blessing to it, then it is the way of everlasting life that is to be contrasted with the perishing way of the ungodly. Everyone is on the way to somewhere. That's true in, you know, physical life. When this service concludes, everyone will be on their way to somewhere. If we can hear the cars passing by out here on the highway, those people are on their way to somewhere. They have a destination in mind. The same is true for the sixth verse. Every one of you in this room, myself included, are on our way. And that way is either the way of the blessed and happy, which the Lord knows, or it is the way that ends in everlasting destruction. The way to everlasting destruction very often in this life has its beginning through a supposed or superficial, even counterfeit happiness. And as I said earlier, not many set out on this way fully understanding where it ends. I trust and pray that you are in the way the Lord knows. Jesus Christ himself saying, Of himself, I am the way. I want to conclude by reading a few verses out of Psalm 119. And I want to read this really as a prayer for all of us. It's verses 33 through 41 of Psalm 119. It goes well with what we've read in Psalm 1. Verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. 
for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Here's a word of encouragement to you to close. If you're not where you want to be, realize that that's a mercy of God to make you long for something more. That you realize you're not in a good place is a mercy. But notice the words of this part of Psalm 119 that I read to you. David, and I do think David wrote this, though he's not named. It doesn't really matter. He is saying here to the Lord, do these things in me. Make me, incline my heart, turn away my eyes, establish your word, turn away my reproach, make me walk, give me understanding, teach me. If you're not where you want to be, pray these things. And see what the God of all grace and mercy does. Amen. Well, let's pray and then we'll observe communion. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this psalm. We're thankful, Lord, for this Lord's day, for this beginning of a new year. Lord, I pray you would help us to have our feet firmly planted on the way you know. The way you sustain. The way you prosper. That way being Jesus Christ himself. Father, I pray and ask that you would be increasingly merciful to those who have yet to come to faith in Christ. Show them the futility of trying to find happiness in this life apart from him. Show them the utter folly of it. And then show them the beauties of your son. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.